Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. Show called Tell Me Everything. I'm John Fugel saying welcome to Progress After Dark. We're so glad to have you with us. Big thanks to the great Michelangelo Signorelli for uh, welcoming me kindly onto his excellent show. My God. I mean, y'all, it's nice that y'all listen to this show, but you, you want to hear a real show sometime. That, that guy knows what he's doing. I'm just, you know. I'm just staggering around like a drunk here. Uh, thank you very much. We're promoting the big show in Chicago this weekend. And uh, thanks to Tom Hartman for having us on last week to promote the D.C. show. For the next three hours, we're going to be coming at you at 866-997-4748. That's 866-997-GRIT. Again, my name is John saying I just want you to know you're a very attractive audience. And I'm, well, I'll admit it. I'm already mentally declassifying you with my mind. Uh, the big show in Chicago, again, this Saturday night at the Harris Theater, which is on the north side of Millennium Park. Come on down. Stephanie Miller is uh, the star, along with Hal Sparks, doing a set. Frangela, God, those women are funny, doing a set. And I am going to be doing a set as well. I haven't played Chicago in four long pandemic-filled years. I'm so glad to finally come back. And I'm saying this as a New Yorker. It pains me. I'm ready to come back and get some real pizza. I, I bow down, Chicago. You are superior to my heart. And it's going to be a great crowd. We're going to be joined by uh, the great Jill Weinbanks, who knows a thing or two about taking down corrupt presidents, and Representative Jan Schakowsky, a friend of this show, will be taking the stage as well. It's going to be a party. And then the next big show, well, shucks, folks, that's a month from tonight at the Saban Theater in Beverly Hills, Los Angeles. And uh, that's going to be Stephanie and Hal and Frangela and me and Rob Reiner's doing it and Adam Schiff is doing it. And I hope I'm allowed to announce those names because they're doing it and other people too. Also, tomorrow night on the show, I'm glad y'all asked. Tomorrow night's going to be a great one. Julian Lennon's return to the program. He has a new album out. And I'll tell you, this is the thing I've been saying about Julian Lennon. When artists you like have new music out you know and they haven't put out an album in a while there's that terror in your heart like oh god am i gonna have to it's gonna be terrible and when i first started this job here way back way back in the uh obama era 
there were uh, a couple of artists that I booked early on who I'd heard of my whole life and they had new albums out. And I was like, oh, God, oh, no, oh, uh, it is such a pleasure to report to you that Julian Lennon's record is luminous, ethereal and gorgeous. His voice sounds great. I say to him at one point, I think you've been listening to a lot of Zero Seven because there's a real ethereal electronic quality. I can't praise the album enough. It's called Jude and it's a really fun conversation. Also, the great Kenneth C. Davis joins us as well tomorrow to talk about the proud American tradition of book burning and book banning. Tonight on the show, Professor Corey Brettschneider joins us to talk about, well, Donald Trump's extremely bad legal week and one of my favorite writers, a hero to progressive journalism, David Korn, makes his premiere appearance on the show. I have wanted David to do this show for years. I have accosted him in various TV green rooms. Finally got to have dinner a dinner with him last week that a mutual rock star friend acquaintance invited me to and uh, his new book you are going to love you are going to love his new book it is uh, called American Psychosis and it is an historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy and he tracks the Everything connecting the dots from the know nothings to uh, the John Birch Society to McCarthy all the way through the rise of the religious right and how that connects how George Bush tried to defy embracing extremism but had to do it how John McCain tried to defy embracing extremism and had to do it how Donald Trump is just the latest in a long link of the once great party of Lincoln hitching its wagon to any right wing nutjob liar or corrupt cretin for more political power. It's a dynamite book. I'm so excited to talk about it with him. Uh, so we got a lot to cover this evening at 866-997-4748. The great Chris Hauselt is our executive producer. He was gone. Now he's back. We missed him. Chris, it's great to have you. Thanks for coming back. I know you didn't want to work with me anymore, so it's it's really lovely. I appreciate it. Uh, Thea Harper, thank you. Is Nico carrying us tonight or is it Robbie? Who's helping us tonight? Uh, it's Nico on the phone. Nico, once again, when you call, you will be lucky enough to talk to Nico. He is a gentleman. He is a professional. All you lecherous old men, you can't hit on him the way you hit on Thea. And we got to talk about how y'all talk to Thea, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to come to your house if you don't treat Thea with respect. And if you hit on Nico, we're just going to we're, we're gonna make it tough for you. In the meantime, I want to wish all of you a happy fall. All of you who listen live, our evil army of the night, and the daywalkers who listen in the afternoon or the mornings on Sirius XM On Demand, the app, the John Fuglesang podcast, happy fall, or, or happy autumn, whichever you celebrate. I, I mean, we have to choose, right? Both words, both words originally came from Britain. According to the dictionary, autumn came first. It was the first seasonal name back in the 1300s, coming from the Latin word autumnus. About 300 years later, we got fall, because you know, there wasn't TV. It was just poets, right? And they were all using the phrase, the fall of the leaves. And so the word fall itself became associated with the season around the 1600s. Eventually fall made its way to the new world. Like nobody says fall in England anymore. They only say autumn. But whatever you think of it, the day is going to get shorter. The night is going to get longer until we get to the winter solstice in December. For those of us here in the Northern Hemisphere, I love fall. It's a great time to be in New York City. It's my favorite season of the year to be in New York City. Um, and it's uh, our first cold night here in Manhattan, going down to 50 tonight. So Mother Nature is following the calendar. I can always tell it's autumn in New York when I, when I walk my child to school and all the local sex shops along the way are selling the pumpkin spice lube. It, it, it's so seasonal. Um, let's get to 
what's going to happen for fascists because I'm I'm hoping the world's fascists and miscreants and right wing teabags are going to have a rough autumn. Let's do all we can to make it as brutal as possible because we're witnessing these incredible human rights protests in Iran. Vladimir Putin's entire political career suffering uh, a sudden fall from a great height that no one can explain. But let's start small. Let's talk about the baby fascists not having a good week and work our way up because J.R. Majewski, come on down. He is the nominee for uh, Ohio's congressional seat in the 9th District, which has been held for many years by Democratic Representative Marcy Koptur. Uh, Mr. Majewski is an Air Force vet. That part's key here. And uh, he's been under fire a lot throughout his campaign for sympathizing with QAnon. He said every state that backed Trump in 2020 should secede from the U.S. He was, in fact, at the Capitol during the January 6th riots. He ran an ad in the primary campaign saying, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to return this country back to its former glory. And if I've got to kick down doors, well, that's just what patriots do. No, that's what stormtroopers do, Broheim. Uh, But he has been popular. You know, he, he got the nomination. Donald Trump gave him a hell of an endorsement. Let me quote from June 5th of this year on his Save America stationery. Jair Majewski will be a fantastic congressman for the incredible people of Ohio's 9th Congressional District. Jr. bravely served in the U.S. Air Force and has spent 20 years working in the nuclear energy industry. I mentioned that, right? He served in the Air Force. He's, he talks about it a lot. He talks about his life as an Air Force combat vet who, after 9-11 deployed to Afghanistan. And he's talked about the tough conditions, you know, he had there. He, he once talked about the, the lack of running water that forced him to go more than 40 days without any kind of bathing. He, he had it rough there in the field in combat. Uh, here is one of the many interviews he's given to a right-wing news source talking about his time in the field as a veteran. Yes, I did. How many tours? One. What what year were you there? What years? Uh, 2000, 2002, 2003. Wow. So you served right at, right at the beginning. Yeah. What was that experience like? Um, tough, tough. I don't like talking about my military experience. Not, not, not that, um, not that we've said too much. I just don't, I don't really like to, I really don't like to divulge a lot of things about the military because, you know, they're to me, you know, it was a, it was a tough time in life. Um, you know, the military wasn't easy, but in retrospect, it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. And, you know, I do it all over again, but, you know, out of respect of, you know, many things, you know, I, I you know, my answer to most people when they ask about my military services, you know, I served, I served honorably and, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. I fought for this country oh. for a lot of months over in wow. the Middle East. And, uh, so did a lot of people that went with me. And, wow. you know, when I see all these things that are going on today, I mean, if I could, if I could, uh, put my BDUs back on, if I wasn't so oh. chubby. I'd, oh. I'd probably, uh, I'd probably try to find a way to do it. What he'd go back you, into combat. Thank you for you your service, sir. Yeah. Yes, thank you for your service. Uh, Mr. Majeski. Um, he doesn't like to talk about it too much. Where have I heard that before? Oh yeah. Donald Trump, when he didn't want to discuss how deep his Christian faith was, cause it was just too personal to him. He he says he doesn't like talking about being a veteran, but he's he, he's done it quite a bit, a lot of shows. And if you'll go to his Facebook page, right above the pinned tweet of Donald Trump's endorsement, he has the big banner, Majeski, veteran for Congress. Not Republican, not Christian, 
not white dude, bro, veteran. So it certainly has been a major selling point. And now the Associated Press decided to learn a little bit more about his military record. And you know what? Turns out it's really easy for AP to get military documents. And they reported this week that Majeski totally lied about his military service. He was never deployed to Afghanistan at all after the 9-11 attacks. He was never in combat at all. He spent six months loading planes at an airbase in Qatar or Qatar, if you swing that way. That's what he did. That's all he did. Here, once again, is another clip of J.R. Majewski, Majewski, sorry, people pronounce it both ways. My cousins are Majeskis. Here he is uh, discussing again his valor in combat. Did she serve in the military? No, she uh, and, and you did. You you were yeah. Air Force. OK, yeah. you served in Operation Enduring Freedom, correct? Absolutely. Afghanistan. Yes, yeah, sir. And she's running smear ads against an Afghanistan veteran. Yeah, hmm. that sounds like yeah. a scumbag to me. It is. She's sounds clipping, like a total scumbag. She's clipping a uh, she's clipping my arsenal video where I'm walking through a warehouse with a with a uh, an AR-15. And they've clipped that into a uh, January 6th protest video where, you know, everybody's fighting. And she's making it look as if I actually, you know, took an AR to Washington, D.C., and uh, engaged no, in any kind of crime or violence. Doing that at all. Oh, so there you go. Democrat once strategy. again, once again. Uh, she could. Yeah. She could have. She could have done him a favor and edited it so it looked like he took an AR-15 into Afghanistan. Into Afghanistan, Never. exactly. So, so again, for- he, he's not just lying about his status as a veteran. He, he's he's feeding this notion that his opponent should not ever run an, uh, an ad against him because of his military service. Uh, and I think I mentioned. It's all a lie. As he said, I'm beyond honored to have earned President Trump's endorsements, and I look forward to serving each and every one in Ohio's 9th Congressional District. Well, guess what? Not so fast. The National Republican Congressional Committee has withdrawn about $1 million in ad money for J.R. Majeski, which tells you the GOP is pretty much just all but surrendering this redistrict, this district, which has been totally redrawn to their benefit. Uh, they, this district backed Trump by three points in 2020, and now they're pulling a million dollars out. They're giving up. And it's important because now they're witnessing it. They have squandered another easy campaign. This should have been a pickup for them. But again, Republican primary voters nominated an extreme lying nut job. What, what is going on in Ohio? I mean, M- M- Mike DeWine uh, is r- refusing refusing to debate his Democratic opponent. J.D. Vance is refusing to debate Tim Ryan. I mean, they were a lock once. Cook Political Report now says DeWine's race is likely Republican, and the open Ohio Senate seat uh, is leaning Republican. Ohio, are you really going to let J.D. Vance? (laughs) You're going to let him go to the Senate? Is that a good way to show how much you love white replacement theory? Let's move to Trump. A man who's lied about everything except his military service, because you might have heard the Mar-a-Lago special master has ordered Trump's lawyers to state in a court filing whether they really actually truly do believe the FBI was lying about documents they took from Trump's Florida residence in that court authorized search that some people call a raid last month. Also, do they really believe the FBI took items that weren't really in Trump's possession? Do they really believe that the FBI planted things there? 
He's asked them to oversee, uh, he's, I'm sorry, he's, he's demanding them pretty much to submit a list of items from the FBI's inventory list that he asserts were not seized from Mar-a-Lago. They have until September 30th, Trump's lawyers, who again, grifters hire grifters. If you're a Donald Trump lawyer, your job is to just stall for time, stall for time and cash checks. That's it. You can do it for years. But they have till the end of this month to definitively say whether Trump really believes the stuff he's been saying on TV and whether he has any evidence to support it. And they have to say it under oath. Oh, aren't you glad Donald Trump fought for the special master and for Raymond Deary to get the gig? Today, Deary wrote in a filing, the submission shall be plaintiff's final opportunity to raise any factual dispute as to the completeness and accuracy of the detailed property inventory. And all day they've been asking Republicans, do you agree with what Trump said last night, that he can declassify documents simply by thinking about it? He's not getting a lot of support, but he's said it many times. You've heard it. The FBI planted items when they searched my home and raided my private club and ransacked it. And they were trying on my wife's lingerie and they planted a lot of pictures of teenage girls tied up and gagged. I don't know how those got there. He's been saying all this crap. His lawyers have not made any of these assertions in court, just like Giuliani. Giuliani would give press conference saying there was fraud, there was fraud, there was fraud. And then he'd go into the courtroom and say, no, Your Honor, we're not claiming fraud. His lawyers are just saying they haven't reviewed the seized materials yet. This is ridiculous. Any other person would be in jail by now. And the 100 documents with the classified markings have now been removed from the special master's review so they can go back to the DOJ to be used in the criminal probe. Trump's having a bad week, but... I think Donald Trump and J.R. Majewski wouldn't trade places with Vladimir Putin. What is going on in Russia? This announcement of a partial military mobilization of 300,000 people with service who are now going to be conscripts, that no one between the ages of 18 and 65 whose male can leave the country, the protests have begun. The fight for plane tickets out of the country has begun. Hundreds of arrests have begun. And they're beginning the process. Conscripts are answering summonses. Schools are being commandeered for for recruits to come in. And Putin is saying this is necessary because we're not just fighting Ukraine. We're we're fighting the entire Western world. Sound familiar? So they're adding 300,000 soldiers from the ranks of their 25 million reservists. Um, And some draftees are saying they don't even have any military experience. Here's Nancy Pelosi telling reporters several G7 leaders actually believe Putin is going to have a real difficult time once he starts trying to steal conscripts from, shall we say, the more entitled classes of Russia. Over the course of this weekend, I've met with three heads of state. All three of them had spoken to Putin in the last few days within this past this week. All of them said he's in it for the long haul. But what was interesting, if you think so, is that they said that, you know, he's running out of people. And before, up until now, he had been uh, sending people to Ukraine from the poorer southern parts of Russia. So there was not a lot of public opinion in Moscow or St. Petersburg or among the educated class in Russia in opposition. His disinformation was keeping, maybe they believed it, but they were not objecting to it. And what they said is he's running out of people from southern Russia, poor poorer people, less educated people, and the people that he's going to call on now, their families will have an objection to body bags coming home. I always had confidence in the moms, wherever it is, to put an end to war because they don't want to see their children risking their lives unless it was for the right reason, a good cause. 
freedom. One twenty-nine year old Russian. And sure enough, he does the three hundred thousand call, and you see the reaction in the more sophisticated areas of Russia. Thanks, Nancy. I thought she had broken. So one 29-year-old Russian told The Guardian he was driving across the border, leaving his pregnant wife behind. Another told the BBC, I will break my arm, my leg, I will go to prison, anything to avoid this whole thing. Russian men aren't stupid. They know that Putin is looking for their bodies to be cannon fodder, and he wants to feed them to his own murderous, stupid, illegal war. Russian men are lining up at the borders. They're paying rising prices to catch flights to countries that will allow them to enter without visas, like Georgia, Montenegro, Turkey, and Armenia. And a lot of these guys aren't even eligible, but they say they're terrified they're going to be called up in the future. And what they're doing is exactly what conservative red states are doing here with abortion bans, which make people not want to open businesses there, which make corporations not want to move there, which makes people not want to go study or teach at their universities. You're risking a brain drain because of bad policy. Russia saw a huge spike in citizens searching Google for how to leave the country. This is true. I read this in Newsweek. The phrase how to leave Russia surged in Google searches ahead of Putin's speech. Um, They rescheduled the speech for the next day because apparently he wasn't feeling well. There's a lot we don't understand. And it seems every day there's another friend of Putin that's Well, dying by falling from a high window or falling down multiple flights of stairs. Multiple. That was the guy this week. Google queries about how to leave the country reached a peak at 6 p.m. Moscow time after an increase earlier on Tuesday. People are terrified. Here's Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking to the U.N. General Assembly about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and who has the power to end it. Here is the reality. None of us chose this war. Not the Ukrainians who knew the crushing toll it would take. Not the United States, which warned that it was coming and worked to prevent it. Not the vast majority of countries at the United Nations. And neither did our people or the people of virtually every UN member state who are feeling the war's consequences in greater food insecurity and higher energy prices. Nor did the Russian mothers and fathers whose children are being sent off to fight and die in this war, or the Russian citizens who continue to risk their freedom to protest against it, including those who came out into the streets of Moscow after President Putin announced his mobilization to chant, let our children live. Indeed, it must be asked, how has this aggression against Ukraine by President Putin improve the lives or prospects of a single Russian citizen. Boom. One man chose this war. One man can end it. Because if Russia stops fighting, the war ends. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine ends. The Russian stock exchange tanked this week. In fact, it's so bad right now that the U.S. dollar has hit a two-decade high as of yesterday after Russia made their announcement about forcing 300,000 military reserves to go march into a death zone. It's really fascinating. Uh, Putin's speech made the U.S. dollar go up 0.4% against other currencies to its strongest level since 2002. Oil prices went up as well. Uh, Russian stocks went down 3.5% after the announcement. The ruble has dropped nearly 3% against the U.S. dollar. Here's one more time, Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Rather than change course, however, President Putin has doubled down 
choosing not to end the war, but to expand it. Not to pull troops back, but to call 300,000 additional troops up. Not to ease tensions, but to escalate them through the threat of nuclear weapons. Not to work toward a diplomatic solution, but to render such a solution impossible by seeking to annex more Ukrainian territory through sham referenda. That President Putin picked this week, as most of the world gathers at the United Nations, to add fuel to the fire that he started, shows his utter contempt for the UN Charter, for the General Assembly, and for this Council. The very international order that we have gathered here to uphold is being shredded before our eyes. We cannot, we will not, allow President Putin to get away with it. Defending Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity is about much more than standing up for one nation's right to choose its own path, fundamental as that right is. It's also about protecting an international order where no nation can redraw the borders of another by force. If we fail to defend this principle when the Kremlin is so flagrantly violating it, we send a message to aggressors everywhere that they can ignore it too. We put every country at risk. We open the door to a less secure, a less peaceful world. Couldn't have said it better myself. Now, uh, we do have a lot of show coming up. Professor Corey Bretschneider will be with us shortly to talk about the Mar-a-Lago case, to talk about John Roberts' really silly defense of the Supreme Court, to talk about Letitia James, and of course, uh, Jenny Thomas. David Korn joins us later. And we are taking your calls all night and we're taking your jokes and your threats at 866-997-4748. I know some of you are calling for Corey, so we will get you through to him as well. Don't go away. We're just getting started. A lot has gone down today. I'm dying to know what you think. We are live and interactive and we'll be right back. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Tony Basil is 79 years old. This day. Yes, the, the cute cheerleader, 79, and she's fabulous. Happy birthday, born this date in 1943. Also 79 years old today, Professor Corey Bretschneider, a uh, professor with a PhD in politics from Princeton, a law degree from Stanford, and you have read his stuff in Politico, the New York Times, and Time Magazine. His book, The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents, is essential. It makes a great book, and it is one you should own. Also, do your brain a favor and pick up his Penguin Liberty series books on free speech, on impeachment, and one on RBG's notable cases. They also make excellent books. Professor Brett Schneider, welcome back. Thanks, John. You know, COVID really messed with my sense of time. Uh, so I was a little surprised to hear how old I am now. But. I know. We only feel 79, but we're still younger than, than Paul McCartney. Uh, Corey, 
it has been such a week. Remember when things were simple and we were all learning what a special master is just last week? <laughs> <laughs> and now yes, the monster so. Trump created has, has killed the mad scientist. Uh, you, you, where do we begin talking about this Mar-a-Lago business, Professor? What, what, what's standing out for you? Well, you know, one thing that we talked about last week is I was saying um, that my 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 hope and pr- prediction was that at the appellate level that this district court judge was so far off that even Trump appointees were going to come through for us. And I thought the same of the special master once we found out, you know, who it was, even though it was a Trump appointee, Second Circuit mm-hmm. judge. And, you know, at some point, yes, you know, as in the case of this district court judge, uh, you know, she sees her loyalty to, to Trump. But I think if you have a lifetime appointment on an appellate court, you've got to think that your peers are other judges. And yeah. the idea that you're going to be beholden to this, you know, criminal and, and go along with his nonsense was, was I thought, you know, not, not going to happen. And it looks like that's exactly what's happening. You know, the rule of law in its most basic form anyway in many ways is under assault by the Supreme Court, but at least in these instances, they called, you know, bullshit when when Trump tried to make these ridiculous arguments. And I thought in particular, what was so nice about the appellate court ruling here, that, and just to refresh everybody's uh, mind, the um, district court judge had said um, that the Justice Department couldn't continue with its investigation because it might be that Trump had executive privilege here, that he had p- possibly declassified some of these documents right. and so had right. a right to them. And they came back and said, look, the issue of declassification isn't the issue. The question is whether this was his personal property or some kind of property that he had a right to. And they said, even, you know, even if he did declassify these documents and they expressed skepticism that he did, um, and we'll talk more about that. It's not his stuff. <laughs> so That's what right. does it even matter? So they it's just not his stuff. right through the bullshit and, it, you know, it, did it, the right thing here. It's not his stuff. He does not have executive privilege anymore. Right. And uh, there is a process to declassifying things. He can't just right. do it as his Jedi mind trick. Um, <laughs> it, it's amazing. That was like, an incredible al- interview. I mean, he oh. is such a, a whack job, but hearing him tell <laughs> that the president can do it in his mind and that he did it in his mind. I guess that was the implication. But, you know, I, I didn't think that was different than what he said really all along from when you and I, you know, first met years ago when, when we talked about my piece, Trump uh, versus the Constitution, because his whole idea from the beginning has been the president can do whatever he wants. That was the Article 2 story. Article 2 of the Constitution means I can do exactly. anything. So essentially what he's saying there is that Joe Biden and Barack Obama could do anything they want to do. I mean, the president is a king. The founders wanted another king who could never be held accountable. That's that's the entire argument. How thrilling to see that they fought for this special master. They got what they wanted because they had a compliant Trump judge. Then they fought for it to be Raymond Deary. They got what they wanted. And now Raymond Deary has just poured so much cold water on this uh but the 11th circuit has turned it into a flood i mean i I, i'm kind of shocked those two out of three of those judges are also trump appointees like judge cannon is it fair to say professor that the 11th circuit opinion was just a hardcore rebuke of judge cannon because it really seems like they're just saying bye felicia doj do what you want to do 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, and, and that is the way to see it, that it is a rebuke to Trump and his ridiculous arguments. But the 11th Circuit, you know, the, the way the federal judiciary works is you have this district court at the kind of bottom level, the, the trial level. Uh, and then you have before the Supreme Court, these intermediate courts. And if you get reversed, especially like this, the language was very clear that this judge had made a mistake. It's embarrassing and it's meant to be embarrassing. And she should be embarrassed. Judge Cannon, you know, made a decision about executive privilege based on a case that came out the other way. I, I don't even know where she was getting her reasoning from, aside from the fact, well, we know where she was getting it. Try to please please to please Trump's allies, basically. Well, to, no, to, to try to please the, the, the it's all about pleasing the Federalist Society, right? I mean, you yeah. do the grunt well, work wing, now. You're, you, possibly you, the, right, but you're, right. you're Brett Kavanaugh. You go down and you help obstruct, you know, counting yeah. the votes in Florida now. And it means in a decade and a half or so, maybe you'll get your number called. It just seems yeah, like it's all that, about playing Supreme Court lottery. And that is certainly true for Brett Kavanaugh. He was one of the worst operatives involved in the worst parts of Bush versus Bush. Gore, Gore and in the, you know, partisan, most partisan version of the Clinton impeachment and got his got his reward. But, you know, I guess the, the sort of more optimistic thing is that that not all judges, including not all judges associated with the federal society are, th- are thinking in that kind of pro Trump way. And mm. so, you know, I, there were there were there were two judges, my understanding is in this 11th Circuit panel who are. Um, uh, Republican appointees, at least one is a Trump appointee. That judge happens to have a spouse who is in the CIA. So I don't think that helped Trump because mm. at some point, you know, if you have any familiarity with what's going on here, you're putting America's security in, in jeopardy. Right. And people have, you know, regardless of party, who have a, a, a loyalty to the security of the United States. I think they, they are rightly appalled by this. So, you know, it's right to say that there's pandering going on and that this Judge Cannon is the worst kind of Trump partisan. But I do think it is a moment, you know, like the January 6th committee with Liz Cheney, where you can say, OK, look, there are these, I, you know, normally in, in most conversations, I'd say right wing judges, <laughs> but right. here they're not Trump judges, at least. And, and that gives me some hope. Hey, before I let you go, Professor, in our final minute, any thoughts about Ginny Thomas and the January 6th committee? I mean, she gets to testify behind closed doors without having to go under oath, you, you know, as opposed to Hillary Clinton, 11 hours on camera under oath. What are your thoughts? Well, I think they want to find out what the involvement of the Supreme Court justice's wife was in this. And the fact that they're interviewing her privately now, I hope, is a prelude to what will be a public examination. And a disclosure of what the hell happened here. And uh, I mean, the idea that a Supreme Court justice who was going to decide on the legitimacy of this coup, uh, his wife (laughs) was working with the masters (laughs) of the coup. I mean, that is got to be just in American history, one of the most frightening moments when it comes to the stability of democracy. So I got to say, you know, yes, I would, of course, would have loved to have seen her on television. But this January 6th committee started out, I started out with very low expectations, and they are overperforming, and, and I think that they're focusing right where they need to when it comes to this, to Ginny Tom, Thomas. Professor, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. Yes, I, I, I too weep that we'll see less of Ginny Thomas on our TV. Yeah. What's the best way for our listeners to follow you, Corey? Uh, at Brett Schneider C on the Twitter and uh, com to, to read my stuff. You're the best, sir. Thank you so much for classing up the joint. We will be right back with your calls. This is Sirius XM.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm Judd saying, Welcome back. Quick reminder, tomorrow night on the show, Julian Lennon returns to join us. And then Saturday night, I will be live at the Harris Theater in beautiful Chicago with Stephanie Miller, Hal Sparks, uh, Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky will be joining us on stage. Don't miss that. Okay. I'm so excited to have this next guest finally appear on the show. Imagine a political party devolving over 70 years from Dwight Eisenhower down to Richard Nixon, down to Reagan, to Bush to Junior Bush, down to Palin, then Trump. My God, the trajectory. They're going to have to run Kid Rock's hepatitis as their next presidential nominee. Fortunately, one of the greatest writers in American politics has taken on the history of how the GOP got this way, from the know-nothings to McCarthyism to the John Birchers to the segregationists to the Christian right to AM radio, Gingrich, the militias, Sarah Palin, all the way up to the Proud Boys. David Korn is the Washington Bureau Chief for Mother Jones Magazine. He is an analyst for MSNBC. He's written so many terrific books, including the number one bestseller, Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. His newest book is American Psychosis. And it shows how what happened in our country, the terrorist attack against our capital on January 6th, was completely in line with a long continuation of a deep-rooted GOP habit of weaponizing the range and derangement of white guys who deserve a better party. I have wanted to get this gentleman on the show for a long time. What a great thrill to welcome David Korn. Hello, sir. Good to be with you, John. Thank you for that very warm introduction. Well, uh, thank you for writing a book that I am going to say on the air with these audiences, my witnesses. I'm giving this as a Christmas gift to progressives I know this year because this book is such an important history. It's right out there. And it's like it's amazing how no one's actually done this before. We've written books about fascism, but actually documenting the history and having this organized framework of the Republican Party and how they got this way is is just stunning. I, I, I kind of want to ask you what made you think of writing this, but this is a book you've been writing your whole career. In, in a way, that's true, but I didn't realize that. I don't know, mm -hmm. a little over a year ago, I was just thinking about the Republican Party relationship with far-right fanaticism and extremism. It's obvious to see it under Donald Trump, right, with his, particularly last few days with his embrace of the crazy QAnon conspiracy theory, but with the Proud Boys and going back to Charlottesville, when he said, you know, when he said of neo-Nazis and white supremacists, mm -hmm. they were very fine people on both sides. I mean, that's been pretty obvious. So I thought it was, well, you know, how is this, how has this evolved over the years? And I went looking for a book. 
I said, someone must have written a book about this or a long magazine piece or something. And I discovered nothing. There are a lot of great political histories out there. A lot of good, you know, Rick Perlstein has written some wonderful books. Uh, Heather Cox Richardson did a great book on the history of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. But no one really took, looked at it through this lens, which is the Republican Party's seven decade long relationship with far right extremism as it's exploited and encouraged it for all this time. And so, you know, you know, the saying, be the change you want to be. Sometimes you have to write the book you want to read. <laughs> exactly. and, so, and so I started doing this. And what, what to me was a, made it even more kind of surprising was that you very, I very quickly saw a way too obvious pattern that had just been kind of hiding in plain sight. And half of it, I've lived through and reported on, but hadn't really connected the dots. And that is going back, you know, starting in, in the late 40s, early 50s with McCarthyism, the Republican Party had again and again and again flirted with, romanced, courted, capitalized on far-right extremism. When I say that, I don't just mean ideological policy positions. I mean working with people uh, who are racists, bigots, conspiracy theorists, what the party itself used to call the kooks. And this is yeah. always been part of its DNA. And a lot of times it's been kept in the dark. It's been put to the side and it's not acknowledged by the party. And But every president, every presidential candidate in the Republican side has engaged in this in some form or another. It's waxed and it's waned, but it's always, always, always has has been there. And if That's you just right. start with McCarthyism, you had the senator from Wisconsin claiming that a, that a group of Democratic officials running the government with other elites uh, were trying to destroy America from within so that it would fall to the Soviet Union. Yeah. And it wasn't that their policies were wrong and they were making mistakes, not being tough enough. It was that they were actively plotting to destroy the United States. Um, and Christianity and everything else. And it's really like it's QAnon, but without the baby eating and sex trafficking and pizzeria basements. But it's the exact same idea. And John McCarthy was lionized by the Republican Party. Um, Eisenhower campaigned with him in 52, thought about denouncing him, but decided he couldn't because the party needed uh, him to bring in voters. And that kind of just things just took off from there. And we can go through the, you know, through the particulars. But um, there's really a straight line from that point to Donald Trump embracing QAnon and using these extremist forces on January 6th to try to retain power. Exactly. And, and you detail it so beautifully how they haven't been able to separate themselves from this element. Lincoln could not disavow the nationalists. He needed them. Nixon had to go with the racist Southerners and the Southern strategy was a gift to them. George W. Bush, at least in the beginning of the campaign in 2000, seemed to make an effort with his compassionate conservatism talk to distance himself a bit. But after New Hampshire, you point out he had to go hardcore with the Christian fundamentalists. And then and then John McCain just seemed to realize he he or seemed to believe he had to pick Sarah Palin. It seems like generation after generation, Republican presidents of different levels of integrity have made the choice for whatever reason to partner with the kooks. Yeah. And, you know, there is no exception 
to this. It's been done in different ways, obviously to different degrees of intensity, mm-hmm. but it's always, always happened. Barry Goldwater did not want uh, to excommunicate the John Birch Society exactly. from the Republican and conservative movement in 1964. And he even created this secret deal with William F. Buckley, who was the godfather, the guru of the modern conservative movement. And they said, we need to keep the Birchers in our tent. Well, Goldwater mm-hmm. wanted them to, you know, to work on his campaign. And in fact, because he had them as a political force, raising money, door knocking, he was able to defeat Nelson Rockefeller in the Republican primaries. And Goldwater, excuse me, and Buckley went along with this. You know, he gets a lot right. of credit for having kicked out the kooks, but he did that in 65. Up yeah. until then, for five, four or five years, he tried to thread this needle and he would criticize the leader of the John Birch Society and praise the members of the John Birch Society. Correct. And that way legitimize and validate their paranoia, you know, their crazy theories about fluoridation and water, Soviet weather machines, Eisenhower being a communist agent, and all that nuttery. And so it, it was it was very, I mean, it was very explicit. When Ronald Reagan ran, ran for governor a few years later in 66, he wrote a letter to another Republican a senator in California saying we have to keep the kooks at bay. He didn't yeah. want, and those are his words. He didn't want to disavow the Birchers and he wouldn't disavow the Birchers, um, but he wanted them to provide on the ground energy to the mm-hmm. to the, his campaign and the Republican movement. Um, and even if you look at somebody like good old Mitt Romney, you know, used to be yes, a progressive Republican who was governor, voted against Trump, you know, considered a decent fellow. I know people who worked for him and with him. And, you know, in that capacity as a neighbor, as a bo- boss, as a member of his community, he does indeed seem to be a decent guy. He was one of the friendliest um, pro-Vietnam tried, War tried, protesters tried. in his college. Of, of all the guys protesting for the Vietnam War but not going, he was one of the friendliest ones there, yes. Yeah, okay. So there you go. And um, in 2011, sort of the height of the Tea Party movement, when he's running for president, and he moves to the right, of course, on immigration and abortion and gun control because the Tea Party is running rampant within the Republican Party. He thinks he has to do that to get the nomination. And that's what, you know, you can criticize and that's not the point of my book. My point Mm -hmm. of the book in the middle of all that, he embraces Donald Trump. At that point in time, Donald Trump is the number one champion of the racist birther conspiracy theory. He had not been a player in Republican politics until this point. He had talked about running in 2012 and then decided not to run in 2012. And he's out there pushing this, you know, again, this extreme race-driven, demagogic, um, dehumanizing, demonizing form of politics with with birtherism. And of course, it's not true. And Mitt Romney accepts quite enthusiastically Trump's endorsement. He literally hugs him at the endorsement ceremony. And what is this doing? You know, it it is validating and showing the rest of the Republican Party that Donald Trump is a player and has a role to play in our party, right? So uh, even good old Mitt 
you know, more so to, than Sarah Palin. You know, go way. along, you know, you know, and and Sarah Palin a few years earlier was picked by John McCain and pushed this line out that 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 Barack Obama was palling around with terrorists, he wasn't a real American, and that he wanted to bring a form of socialist tyranny That's to right. the United States. And if you went to his went to her rallies, which I did as a reporter, there was a tremendous level of hatred and animosity. People were shouting about Obama, traitor, traitor, commie, and kill him. And when I was on the campaign trail with other reporters who had been covering politics literally for decades, it was clear to all of us that we had never seen this level of, of, of visceral hatred at a presidential campaign rally. And it wasn't just Sarah Palin. John McCain, the campaign, had told her to make this make this attack. It wasn't right. that she was just doing this on her own. She was not going rogue. You know, she went That's rogue right. in other ways, but not in this way. And the campaign even put out ads saying that, you know, to to amplify what she was saying, that Obama was uh, palling around and supported terrorists, which, you know, was false. But it played to the extremist base that believed in birtherism, believed he was a secret socialist who mm-hmm. wanted to destroy the country. So McCain, who... And I knew John, and I liked him in a lot of ways. I obviously disagreed with him on policy. You know, when push came to shove, even though at some rallies when people would say Obama's a Muslim, and he would say, no, he's a decent man, I just disagree with him, which was a, some, a highlight of the 2008 campaign. But in other points, he allowed this hatred and this embrace of extremism to continue. And in some ways, his campaign encouraged it. That's why she was hired for the same reason Lincoln had to hire Andrew Johnson, at least the reason he thought. And I'm glad you mentioned Mitt Romney, who did resort to birtherism by the end of his campaign. At that time, I was doing mornings on CNN with Soledad O'Brien. And one morning we had Romney's communications director on. And I really wanted to ask him about how are you going to pivot after getting the nomination? Because you've gone so far to the right. How are you going to back away from this? And he made this Etch-A-Sketch comment that wound up uh, going quite viral and made me a little bit famous in the uh, far right wing guys who love Mitt Romney uh, community. But, you know, I'm, I'm watching this struggle play out today. I'm watching Kinzinger and Liz Cheney on this January 6th committee trying to root out the darkness in their own party. And all I can think of is the 1964 Republican convention, which you mentioned where the liberal Republicans, which we used to have, were trying to get rid of the KKK and the John Birchers. And it was Barry Goldwater who stepped up and said, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Yeah, yeah, he needed the votes. The, uh, the, the book opens with this scene yeah. at the Cow Palace, which is like the Madison Square Garden of San Francisco at the time. They having, you know, the 1964 Republican convention, Barry Goldwater, with the help of John Virtues and other extreme factions, has secured the nomination. He beat Nelson Rockefeller, who was the epitome of liberal moderate republicanism. He was the governor of New York. Um, at the time. Um, And the liberals, the moderates within the party were aghast at what they seemed, what they believed was the takeover and a hostile takeover by extremists and kooks. So they made one last stand 
at the convention. And that was they proposed a plank for the party's platform that would condemn the extremism of Communist Party. You can all get down with that in 64, sure. right? The sure. Ku-, Ku Klux Klan, most Republicans probably could condemn the Ku Klux Klan and the John Birch Society. And that, as we now say, was a triggering event. Uh, the delegates and the part, the witnesses, the audience members at the convention went batshit, to use a technical term. Okay, they uh, when not, when when Rockefeller went up to speak in favor of this motion, they hooted him down. They threw things at him. Reporters who were there you know, wrote stories thinking that there was going to be violence and that the Republicans had to get Rockefeller out of there. Every time he talked, he was cheered. He was booed. There was there were catcalls. They were violent in rhetoric and in manner, uh, although no punches were thrown eventually. And this was all because Rockefeller was saying that John Birchers and other extremist factions shouldn't be part of the Republican Party when they had actually taken over the Republican Party. Amazing. You know, the the the, the measure loses soundly. And Nash, on national TV, the scene is being played out. And 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 all, we, you know, most Republicans watching it kind of realize this looks awful. We can't condemn the KKK and the Communist Party and the John Birch Society. And it looks like we're defending them. And it looks like we're, you know, we're we're a bunch of um, extremists. And, you know, people who worked for the Goldwater campaign were trying to quiet this down and their stomachs were sinking. Um, and then the, the next night or the night after, Goldwater gets up there and says extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. So while extremism had become an issue during the primary campaign, and now in the general campaign, he was embracing this notion of extremism. Uh, yeah. It, you know, it sunk his campaign uh, and it showed just the full takeover. It took Ronald Reagan a couple years later to show how you could have the same extreme views uh, right. that Barry Goldwater had, but have a charming personality and speak in a different terms about things and went over at a time of societal chaos with the protests against the war, civil rights, sexual revolution, that you could sort of win over white working class union voters, uh, which right. Goldwater was not able to do. But that, you know, but I kind of basically draw a line. I, I say it's not a straight line. I say it's a zigzagging line from the mob mentality and the mob actions at the 1964 convention to the mob that ransacked the um, Capitol on January 6th. I mean, there's yes. obviously not equivalent um, actions. One was outright violence and trying to stop the peaceful transfer of power. But they both were driven by a form of extremism that has been essential to the Republican Party. Absolutely. And it, it's interesting in go, the way you analyze it, it made me think a lot about the fundamentalist wings of all the world's religions, because extreme right wing Christianity, extreme right wing Islam, extreme right wing Judaism, all the ex- fundamentalist wings all have a, a couple things in common, one of them being this penchant for perpetual victimization, that always we are so put upon 
And that in turn makes people feel that violence on our side is justified because we speak for God. And it's amazing how generation after generation, I see the same thing happening in the GOP. They're constantly nurturing paranoia, grievance, tribalism, and it seems to just keep on working much in the way fundamentalism is used to call people to do the bidding of masters. Yeah, and 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 starting with McCarthy, um, what you see is this pattern of them dehumanizing and demonizing you know, the political opposition. They're not just yep. political opponent, opponents. They're an internal subversive force trying to annihilate America and our Christianity. And that happens again and again with, you know, with, with, with Nixon, it was like the, the cutting a deal with the white supremacists in the South. They talked about their way of life, that this, you know, mm-hmm. that the Democrats were trying to destroy their way of life. Um, if you look at the new right and the religious right, which rose together in the 1970s, they literally said, you know, through direct mail and other methods of the day, uh, that the Democrats, liberals and gays were trying to destroy Christianity and destroy America. And it wasn't that they were wrong. They were a existential threat to the country. Um, and Reagan embraced all this. In fact, he had a political action committee that engaged in the exact same type of rhetoric before he ran for president in 1980. Um, you can, you know, you can look at Newt Gingrich in the in the 80s and 90s, sort of picking up where totally what Rush Limbaugh was saying, and Rush was all again demonizing and belittling Democrats and saying there were conspiracies and whether it was climate change or feminazis and making fun of gay people with AIDS. Newt Gingrich comes along and says to his fellow Republicans, we need to engage in politics like it's a civil war. His his chief advisor draws up a memo saying we have to act like we're the Viet Cong. It's kind of a weird thing to to put it. But uh, and Newt Gingrich has a political action committee that puts out the list of words that uh, that Republicans right. should use when talking about Democrats. And it's traitor, enemy, treason, mm-hmm. radical, anti-family, anti-children. And, 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 and Gingrich himself, and this is long before the Monica Lewinsky stuff, says that it's his goal to show America that Bill Clinton and the Democrats are not normal Americans. So we're not talking about you're wrong, on gun policy, you're wrong on housing policy, your ideas about the capital gains tax rate are misplaced. It's you are trying to destroy America. And if you yeah. and, and 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 Democrats, people on the left may say things like that, but Democrat elected leaders tend not to. And a good a, a good indication of that is if you look at the 1988 campaign, George H.W. Bush, this man of noblesse oblige and you know mm-hmm. statesman he runs a campaign that says michael dukakis is not a patriot and is an enemy of america because he joined the aclu and he had That's questions right. about legality of forcing people to say the pledge of allegiance and they're out there beating him up again and then there was the racial element what the Wally Horton had but they're out there basically saying he's not american he is a threat to america what is what is Dukakis saying in return? My policies are better. I have a better plan to give you good jobs and good wages. And he's not attacking 
the the faith, the you know, the political faith of George H.W. Bush. He's trying to have a debate about policy matters while George H.W. Bush is ripping the skin off him and demonizing him. Um, and that's kind of the way things have been. And of course, you know, Donald Trump comes along after Ginridge, after Rush Limbaugh, after the Sarah Palin, after the Tea Party. And he sees that, you know, either he sees or he intuits that each of these iterations has just further radicalized the Republican mm-hmm. base and has intensified their appetite for red meat. I mean, after yeah. Sarah Palin and the Tea Party, people saying that Barack Obama was a secret socialist Muslim from Kenya who wanted to destroy the American co- economy so he could impose a totalitarian di- dictatorship. After all that, then you have these Republicans in 2015 debating tax plans. Je- Bobby Jindal, my tax plan is better than, than Chris Christie. Well, <laughs> the base is saying, you've been telling us that the Democrats are trying to destroy my home. My family, my religion. And I don't care what you have to say about the minimum wage. And Trump <laughs> kind of says, you think you've seen red meat. I can give you red meat. And so when a guy at one of the Trump's early rallies stands up and says, we got to do something about the Muslims. We got to get rid of the Muslims. What does Trump say? You know, a lot of people say things like that. We're going to we're going to look at that. Mm-hmm. And so he mirrors you know, the hatred, the extremism. He goes on Alex Jones' conspiracy show and you know, basically calls him a hero. And he is just fully embracing the nuttiness and the extremism and tramples over the rest of the GOP. Absolutely. And it's really not his, I mean, it's his doing. But ultimately, the issue is not Donald Trump or Newt Gingrich or Rush Limbaugh. These are just single individuals. It's a fact that what they're saying is working with an audience of millions. There are millions of Republican voters or Republican leaning voters who buy this stuff, who buy this will, who want to shout lock her up um, and who now see Trump as the, you know, as the cause. Yeah. You know, you know, it's not, you know, it's not about having a certain type of government or a governing policy, it's now all about him because he mirrors and echo, echoes their grievances and their extremism. Absolutely. David Korn's new book, by the way, is American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. I just want to ask you a couple more things really quick. I'm so grateful you stayed up late tonight, but you're, you're right. I mean, they're, they're, it's all about the modern scapegoats and it's trans kids, trans soldiers, uh, Syrian refugees, uh, the undocumented guys at Home Depot looking for day labor who were told are the reason your job got shipped to China. But you write in the book. Nixon attained the presidency by exploiting the paramount divisive force in American society, racism, and the sense of fear and dread spreading through much of the nation. And it's a playbook that certainly works. But is it true that Nixon also told Bush to dump the right wing Christian fanatics like Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell? Yeah, Nixon is a very interesting case. I think all psychopaths probably are, right? I agree. Um, I mean, in nineteen, when he runs for president in 1960, uh, you have Goldwater and other conservative Republicans sensing an opportunity. 
these these are like libertarians out of the West who didn't want government interference in most anything, right? right. And they saw with the rise of federal, you know, federal civil rights legislation and civil right act action at the federal level, uh, that the South was getting pissed off. The racists of the South did not want a government that would protect or advance the rights of black people. And they put two and two together and said, well, then they're going to love us. You know, they didn't come out of it like we, you know, that we're here to protect racism, but it's like, we don't want the government doing things and we don't want them, you know, we don't want to impose civil rights legislation. (laughs) And so Goldwater is, you know, and others are arguing in 1960 that the Republican party, which up to then had been identified with the party of Lincoln with helping blacks and most most black voters had an affinity for the Republican Party. It was the Democrats who were running the South. Yeah. The, you know, the Dixiecrats and the segregationists. Right. So, but what Goldwater says, we should flip it, dump the black voters and go for the white Southern voters where we can start winning some states during uh, and, and getting electoral college votes. And Nixon says, no. Nixon sticks to the traditional pattern of campaigning for the black vote and not, you know, throwing out racist dog whistles to the South. He loses, you know, in a close election to John Kennedy. And in 68, when he's running and he's being challenged by Ronald Reagan, who is, again, one of these libertarian uh, conservatives from the West. Mm -hmm. uh, And he realizes that Southern delegates to the Republican convention might vote towards Reagan even though Nixon seemed to be in the lead, he cuts a deal with Strom Thurmond. And the deal is no, you know, no judges who are going to support civil rights legislation. You know, I'll make sure I pick a vice president who is acceptable to the South, which means not Nelson Rockefeller or liberal, you know, moderate Republican. He ends up picking Spiro Agnew, of course. Mm -hmm. And at the convention itself, he tells his campaign manager you know, the lovely, amiable John <laughs> Mitchell to tell mm-hmm. the seven delegates, this is the message. No more pro-Negro crap. Those are the words that Nixon used. So right. he made a very calculated decision to play to the racists of the South and to get past Ronald Reagan and then to try to get past George Wallace, Wallace That's right. uh, who was a former Democrat, a segregationist, who is now running as an independent. Um, and that's what we now know as the, as the Southern strategy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it worked. Nixon won, you know, won, a, won in a very close election against Hubert Humphrey. And it opened the door for the Republican Party to, you know, become almost unbeatable in the South. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's always a backlash to any progress, right? Like slavery ends. So we get Jim Crow and American apartheid. So you get you get civil rights and then you get the Southern strategy and the drug war. Follow that. And then you get the first black president. So Trump follows behind. I mean, I'll never forget being in D.C. uh, the week of Dr. King's birthday for Trump's inaugural, where we celebrated a guy who fought racism on a Monday and inaugurated a racist on the Friday. But in reading the book, I. I, I wanted to ask you, how did you feel when Joe Biden finally used the F word and came out and 
called them semi-fascist. Um, do you think Joe Biden should use tougher language to describe Trump and the Republicans? Is it significant that he's using that kind of vernacular? Yeah, I, well, I think it is significant. Um, you know, when I started this book, I really did not expect it to be as timely and as relevant as it seems to be uh, these days. To me, it was sort of an interesting historical story. There were a lot of great characters, a lot of great episodes, a lot of moments where things could have gone another way. And they didn't. So you can sort of see what I call the ripples of history. So, I mean, it was very intellectually engaging to me. Uh, but now we see we have this debate about MAGA extremism and whether it is whether Trump is or is not leading uh, the nation towards fascism, semi-fascism, fascism, authoritarianism and, and what terminology to use here. I thought that Biden's speech was on one level pretty brave because it's not the speech he wanted to give. It's not the speech he expected to give when he was elected president. I mean, I've known Joe Biden for decades as a reporter who covers him, and I've had a few conversations with him and have interviewed him. And, you know, when he talked about bringing the country together, he means it. He wants to be one of those senators who cut deals and advances his own interests while throwing something to the other side and realizing that's the way you make progress, whether it's the Violence Against Women Act or the arms treaties he, 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 he ushered through the Senate when he was head of the Foreign Relations Committee, you know, and he, he he is a guy, despite all you know the demonization on the on the, on the right, who would rather be bringing people together and having honest policy fights yeah. um, over policy matters. So when he gets out there and, and it talks about the threat posed by extremism and that there are elements of fascism to it, I think that is a big thing for him. It's a brave thing for him. I know it's a difficult thing to him. I I've never talked to him about this particular subject, but I have talked, I did talk to Obama a couple times in which he said to me that he always kept in mind that he believed he was the president of all America, even the people who didn't vote for him, even the people who hated him. And he would have to think about their interests and how he could serve the largest number of Americans. And I think that's probably the way that Biden approaches this. I know the right won't believe that, but I think that's the way he approaches this. And so I think it is tough to get out there and say there's a huge block in American politics that um, are extremists and that pose a threat to democracy. I think he gave the Republican Party too much of the benefit of the doubt by saying there are yeah. other Republicans and better Republicans who aren't like this. I think right now that is the Republican Party. And if you look at my book, you can't flip a switch and go back to the you know, the, the good old days of the GOP, because in some ways what I'm writing about it, the story I'm telling shows us that that was never the case. Um, uh, so I think engaging the debate was a good thing to do, was a difficult thing to do. And I think the Democrats and, you know, he's the most prominent one, have to continue to have this conversation. Uh, we're now looking at the prospect of a party that supports a guy who wants to pardon people who, you know, beat the crap out of law enforcement officers at the mm -hmm. Capitol and try to stop the peaceful transfer of power, and a guy who has embraced the nuttery of QAnon, that that party might be in charge of one, if not two, houses of Congress. That, I, you know, 
I think it's hard for a lot of Americans who don't pay close attention to politics to fully grasp that and understand what that means, what the implications or ramifications of that will be. And I, you know, I do, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene in charge of a committee, um, 37 investigations of Hunter Biden, going back to the emails uh, of Hillary Clinton, Benghazi. uh, Let's get Vince Foster in there, too. Garland, impeachments Mm -hmm. of Joe Biden, impeachments of Kamala Harris. Roger Um, Clinton's probably done something they can go after. Yeah. Yeah. You know, know, it's going to it's going to be, you know, crazy town run by people who, you know, if they don't fully believe it, are playing footsie with all sorts of dangerous conspiracy theories that debase the public discourse. Um, So, you know, Biden was right to start talking about this. But, you know, I, you know, as someone who's selling a book, you know, I firmly believe that to, you know, convince people to do anything, (laughs) buy a book or take something, take a matter seriously, you need to, somewhat you know metaphorically hit them over the head a couple of times yeah. you have to remind them you have to you know the first time they may think huh yeah but you got to come back to them you got to bring new evidence or a new form of promotion and it, it has to be kind of an ongoing dialogue it can't be one and done and so absolutely you know the democrats have only six weeks or so to the midterms um you know fortunately donald trump is doing a lot of the heavy lifting for them but nevertheless, Supreme Court too. Supreme Court too. They're helping. Yeah, in the Supreme Court too. But nevertheless, for this point that that Biden made with difficulty, I think going against his internal predilection because he believed it has to be done further and farther. Absolutely. Well, you know, they always say nowadays, oh, this book is so much more timelier than I expected it to be. But this is a book that was supposed to be timely. And yet I'm still shocked at how timely it is. The book is American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. David Korn, I'm giving this book as a gift to people this year. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about it. Great to be with you, John. Thank you. I'll drag you back again soon. Quick break. When we come back, your calls at 866-997-4748. This is SiriusXM. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Mitch in Kent State. Hello. Good evening, John. The station wagon is gassed and ready to go for tomorrow. <laughs> you're coming to Chicago. I can't believe you, man. I gotta, I gotta write a lot of new jokes because you were at the last one. <laughs> can't wait, can't wait, uh, John. Uh, 
one uh, Bill Murray leftover tidbit from last night. Remember him and uh, Bill Murray the K in uh, the Ruddles. In the Ruddles, yes. Hilarious. Hilarious. Uh, John, the other thing, <laughs> uh, 50, uh, 50 years ago today, um, David Bowie started the uh, Ziggy Stardust Store in ah, Cleveland, you, Ohio. You have outgeeked me, sir. I had no idea. Yeah, my brother went to that show. That's how I remember it. <laughs> but, wow. Uh, yeah. At uh, Playhouse Square, I believe, in Cleveland. But, uh, yeah, 50 years ago today. Wow. Uh, John, the, um, what, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, isn't that pretty much a slam dunk against Trump? I mean, Mike, I, you just read that, you know, no person shall hold any office under the United States having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution, having engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid to comfort to the enemies. I mean, that's pretty much word for word exactly what he's done. Yeah. But you know what? There's also an emoluments clause. There was also 10 counts of obstruction of justice from Robert Mueller. These rules on paper mean nothing if our leaders don't enforce them, do they? Mitch, you're a gentleman. I'm so glad you're coming to Chicago. Can't wait, John. Looking forward to it. All right, man. Have a great evening. I'll see you there. And thank you, everyone, for listening tonight. Thank you to David Korn. So great to finally have him on the show. Thanks, as always, to Professor Corey Brettschneider. Thanks to Chris Housel for being the best damn producer who will still speak to me. Give us a good review, and, 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 and we'll see you soon. Get tickets to Chicago. We'll see you there. Have a great evening. Keep it tuned to progress. Peace. Peace.